Hi, I'm Elise Dayeev, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 15 new Class of 2022 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Justine Vanderloon, a Class of 2022 Emerson Collective Fellow. Justine is an independent journalist who focuses on gender, crime, violence, and mass incarceration. She's writing Unreasonable Women, which will use narrative stories and original data to explore the links between trauma, systematic failures, and the criminalization of women. She is the host of a new investigative podcast, Believe Her. So Justine, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. To start, can you frame your fellowship project for me just so we have a better sense of what you'll be working on this year? Sure, thank you. And I'm so excited to be joining as a fellow this year. So my project is a book called Unreasonable Women, Survival, Punishment, and Mass Incarceration in America. And the book is looking at what is termed the criminalization of survival. But I, I want to say at the start that this is not exclusive to women. There are many criminalized survivors throughout our prisons. But it's what I'm working on is when women are criminalized, are prosecuted, are arrested, and are incarcerated for actions they took to survive physical or sexual violence. So my book looks at three women in three different prisons in America and interweaves those stories with original data that I've gathered over the past two years that looks at how common criminalization of survival is. And the best answer I have right now is that it's about 30% of women in prisons for murder and manslaughter charges are serving time because they protected themselves from death or from sexual assault. And the book really interweaves these narratives and this data to make a larger argument about mass incarceration in America and gender violence and what it is to be a woman in a violent society. But it also aims to really humanize the women that I'm writing about and tell their stories in a new, fresh way. So I want to just dive deeper into the project in a bit. But before I do so, I just had a few questions about your own professional background, given the range of work you've produced in recent years. More recently, you produce a diversity or a diverse body of work through your career, um, starting from a travel memoir to an investigation of the murder of a young woman in South Africa. And so I'm curious, especially with regard to your new project and your former projects, what kind of draws you to these stories? And how do you kind of decide that that is the body of work that you want to dive deeper into? Yeah, it's a pretty eclectic trajectory. <laughs> because I'm not, a, I, I didn't train as a journalist. I didn't know that's what I wanted to be. I think I didn't really fully understand it as an option. So I just kind of wanted to be a writer. I didn't have a grand plan for it. I wrote a travel memoir after I actually also ghost wrote uh, an Italian wine merchant's tale of <laughs> coming of age. And when I ended up going into, I, I, my husband is South African and I moved with him to South Africa. And I came upon this story, which I wrote about in my book, which is called We Are Not Such Things. And it was a story about a truth and reconciliation, a story that came out of the truth and reconciliation hearings in South Africa about an American woman who came to become very close with the men who had been convicted of killing her daughter at the very end of apartheid. And so I went in and it sort of sounds sort of ridiculous at, <laughs> at this point, but I kind of went in there thinking that that would be almost a, like a, a short year long project, kind of telling this almost uplifting story of this friendship that came out of this terrible event. But it became very clear that that wasn't really the story after all. And in a way I became 
a journalist by accident through that because it became an investigative project and I started to look into it and I ended up spending four years in it. And I realized, oh, this is definitely what I should be doing all along because I'm incredibly nosy, very, very nosy. I have so many questions about everything. I love going deep diving into stuff. I love being able to ask people about their lives. And that could be seen as kind of pushing boundaries in civilian life. But if you're a journalist, you're actually allowed to do it. So that that's where I, I, I realized this was the genre for me. And it was something I really wanted to do. And as far as what I write about, I've done long form journalism on um, immigration, on the Southwest border. I've done some essays, I've all of those things. But to write a book, my main requirement is that it has to be obsession worthy. It has to be something I can be obsessed with for years, which is what it was with my past book. But this project is even different from that because in a way, I feel like I kind of have found my life's work. Once I finish this book, I think I'll continue to look at how women are viewed in society, how women cope with that, how marginalized groups navigate within a system. So for this, I mean, this, I feel even differently than the last book, more invested in it. But I think my number one requirement and how I decide to really double down on something is if I can't stop myself. And that's certainly what happened here. That makes sense. You mentioned earlier in describing your project that you are looking at women in incarceration, particularly those who have defended themselves against physical or sexual violence, often referred to as the criminalization of survival. Can you describe the origins of that term as well as discuss what it means to you within the stories that you're covering as part of this project? So I've actually been asked recently several times, what's the origin of the term? So I think I need to go track it down. I'm not exactly sure the exact origin, but it's a plan to find where that comes from. As far as my understanding of it, because I think it's a fairly new term and it's a term that I believe, and I speak on correction, has originated or at least been put out into a more mainstream framework and been put out to the public a little bit more by abolitionist organizers who I think worked on the ground in women's prisons and were seeing that the people they were working with really didn't fit in the only way we have to understand women who protect themselves, which is, which was previously battered women's syndrome, but that's a kind of pathologizing. It's a syndrome, right? Like you, you needed to have some symptoms and it really only applied to a particular type of woman, you know, a white woman, a housewife for the most part. And that was just not who the people on the ground saw in their prisons. It, it didn't account for the experience of people like Tanisha Williams, one of the people I'll be writing about. She was a sex worker. She was abused as a child. She is a black woman. She doesn't present in a courtroom as somebody imagines the quote unquote paradigmatic victim, the perfect victim would. Although she was through her life subjected to immense amounts of trauma, both interpersonal and structural. So criminalized survival include someone like Tanisha and, and her instance, she took part in a killing with a gun to her head. The person with the gun to her head was not her boyfriend. He was a roommate, but he had abused her. And so she wasn't like defending herself against her abusive husband. So she didn't fit in that. So criminalized survival is a much more inclusive term that really looks about the ways in which very bluntly survival largely by marginalized people, is criminalized. So 
to me, the term is much more interesting and it doesn't pathologize these actions to live, you know, these actions that are not necessarily a syndrome, but are really just the hope to survive another day. So that's why it appealed to me to look into. Great. That framework is very helpful. You know, and so as you mentioned, the conversations that are happening around this theme of criminalized survival um, is both very heavy and both very intense and often dismissed in terms of the conversations about criminal justice reform today. And so how did you first learn about these cases and what spurred you to report on them? I'm not sure if it's dismissed. It might be dismissed. It might be that people don't quite know broadly about it, which is what I hope to be able to do is make it something that's widely understood what's happening here. I first learned about this from an organization called Survived and Punished, which is an umbrella organization of people who work in women's prisons, educators, attorneys, organizers, formerly incarcerated women. Some of them are currently incarcerated women who work in women's prisons, and they were looking at the ways in which women are punished for their acts of survival. And they hashtagged, and they Survived and Punished mainly looks at women of color, trans women, trans men who are in prisons, immigrants, but they were uplifting the case of a woman in Poughkeepsie, New York named Nikki Adamando. And I was like a new mom at the time. I couldn't really go to the Southwest border and report on immigration because I had this baby. And I remember just looking at this hashtag free Nikki. And I thought, let me look into that case. You know, I'm interested in this idea that they're putting forth. So I contacted I think it was Nikki's friend at the time. And I said, I'd I'd like to hear a little bit more about what happened. I I believe it was 2018 or early 2019. Ended up going, following that case and then being sucked into what I essentially refer to now as the vortex because it was so complex and it was so unbelievable to me what I was watching happen. I was also started going to a 20, I think it was 26 days. It was like a month long trial. I went almost every day. And it was a masterclass in criminalized survival because what you would read in a newspaper about this case was just not what I was seeing happening. And what you would read in a transcript after the fact or in some official document was certainly not what I would see, what I was watching unravel in front of me. And while I was reporting on that case, I was calling everybody that I could think of that knew about this and saying, I'm watching this happen in Poughkeepsie. I'm watching this woman who says that she was horrifically abused and has an immense amount of evidence. I'm watching her be prosecuted as a liar and a slut and totally non-credible sort of hysteric, but it doesn't match up with what I'm seeing in the evidence and what what I'm coming to know. How common is this? And everybody that I talked to said, yeah, like that's exactly what happens. That's what our prisons are full of, those people. They weren't sort of shocked at all. They were, I mean, they were shocked at the horror of the case, but they were not shocked that this was happening. And it seemed like, yeah, that's who we put in prison. And we, I knew that there were, I think there were some numbers out saying that 94%, up to 94% of women in prison had experienced sexual or physical, you know, domestic violence often repeatedly throughout their lives before they went into prison. But I wanted to know how many people are in prison because they lived through this and nobody could say. I mean, everyone said, yeah, a lot, but nobody knew the numbers. So from there, I decided I needed to find this data project. I needed to start looking into this phenomenon that everyone seemed to know existed, but nobody had the numbers or the background or the research to prove it. I imagine the reporting for this is a bit challenging, right? And it requires you to 
kind of adapt and adjust on the fly. And so can you talk more about some of the challenges you faced, if any, as you've reported on the book? Um, My understanding from reading your application is that you are in touch with women who are still in prison. And so there's also, you know, certainly a level of walls that you have to work through, right? And barriers that you have to like also figure out um, how to work around. And so can you just talk about the reporting process and just how you've adapted your reporting process as a result of just kind of coming up against these challenges? Yeah. So I think that reporting with people who are in prison is its own world. It's a completely different type of reporting. Whereas I've always immersed myself in people's lives physically. I'll just live their lives with them, go along in the car for four years, you know, ride over the townships, go to the homeland in South Africa, go to the Southwest border. You know, when you start dealing with a population that's only incarcerated, and I am in touch with, you know, well over a hundred people in women's prisons, you know, I've sent out letters to thousands. Um, So that's really what I do. You have to reconceptualize how you're going to report. But for me, in a way, it's not that it's an advantage, but I try to think of it in terms of how can I incorporate the feeling I get and the challenges I get from not being free, not being able to freely correspond with them into my writing, which is all about their confinement. But the main challenges, I would say, come down to access, money, and censorship. So access, I have to pay a lot of money to access these women. I guess they're, they're intertwined. There's private corporations that are charging me to make phone calls, you know, $2 for a call, which doesn't sound like a lot, but if you think about somebody in prison, who first of all is making in some States, nothing in some States, four cents an hour, often, you know, $5 a month and a call out is $2. It's immense and ridiculous and a human rights violation because their families are the ones that pay that are paying. But for me, I have to get the money to be able to even talk to my sources. I need to have a lot of funding and like money just to have conversations because if I want to talk to somebody, it might be and the minute, by the way, the $2 or whatever is for a 20 minute capped call. So I might need $6 just to have an hour long interview with someone in terms of access. Of course, it's limited. I can never really be in prison with these people. (laughs) And then there's the censorship, which is to say that everything that we do and say is being recorded by the states. Whether they're paying attention depends, but I, you know, people who are on appeal, people know DAs look like listen in to these calls and everything that we write is copied. And so there's a level of confinement and oppression just in our communications that's unique to prisons. But as I said, I since I can do nothing about that, I try to use it in the work and try to find ways to think creatively about making that level of oversight and putting through the feeling that like the state owns these people as it, as it conceives of it and getting that somehow into what I'm writing. Yeah, I mean, that's a really vivid kind of portrayal of just the challenges that you're up against as a journalist to tell the stories that need to be told. And often I find that many of our fellows who are covering stories like this, right? There's this fine line between the journalistic hat that you're wearing, but also this kind of activism representation of your work, which while not intended to be the case, often becomes the case because of the types of stories you're you're covering. And so I'm curious for you, as you kind of toe this line between journalist and activist, just how you're thinking about the book and the goal of change that you hope to see as a result of it, but just how you're thinking about your own work 
and how you kind of balance the tension between the two? I mean, it's a it's a tricky thing since I don't have this hard journalistic background in the sense I didn't go to J school. I may not have all the anxieties that someone who was trained in some more traditional journalism might have because I just don't know to have them. I've always really put the story first and have tried to be as rigorous as I can in my reporting while also, well, let me say this. I come to this particular subject with a point of view, but it's not a point of view that I just spontaneously have. It's a point of view that's supported by years of research and work and will be supported by more and a lot of expertise, um, not my own, some my own, but of people who know so much about this. And and I include in my experts, not just attorneys, but women who've been in prison for years who've lived through this. So the idea of bias to me is always, or and you didn't say bias, but the idea of you know activism and journalism and an idea, like, I guess, my solution right now is twofold to that. One is for me, the story is coming first, their story, looking into everything I can find to back that up, but also being honest about when it when it's messy. Because I think activism, which is necessary, it's a very pure way of approaching an issue. It's not about necessarily the nuance that there's not that that's not the purpose of it. It's about you know, this is not right. And we're going to, we're going to yell it to the rooftops and tell as many people and get as many people together. Whereas I'm also looking at nuance at when something doesn't go perfectly with the story and dissecting that. And I think through that kind of that story focused account and saying, if it is messy, that's one way that I kind of try to balance it. I believe what these women are telling me and where it doesn't match up, you know, I look at that. But I believe these stories because also my data shows, like, I don't think that this woman in Maryland, this Black woman in Maryland who's 65, who says this thing happened to her, and this white woman who's 28 in California, who says this thing happened to her, and they're so similar. And this happens all through all of my research and data. I just don't see where (laughs) they're getting in touch with each other to make this conspiracy. So I'm seeing this, these patterns and I see it in my research and I see it when I'm reporting and I see it in all these files. I can see exactly what's happened to these people. Um, And so, yeah, I I also do want their lives to change. You know, I am not out there with a sign really. I might be in the corner with a notepad, but I would like to see that. And I hope mainly that my work can also be used by people who might want to do a freedom campaign for somebody might be used in the future, you know, an attorney who might find the data useful in a courtroom might be used by anybody in power to think differently about it. But I always go back to my main role, which I think of as just the writer and the storyteller with the rigorous journalism to back it up. That's helpful to context. You know, as you said, that this reporting can be messy and it's also challenging, as you described earlier, too. And I'm curious about the personal impact on you that this story has had as you cover these cases and in the detail that you are about how you kind of absorb it all and, and also work through some of your own emotional connection to the work. Yeah, that's a, it's a topic that I hear talked about a lot um, recently. I don't think it's been 
something that anyone ever talked about before is how does the, maybe they did, maybe I was just out of the loop, but I see it a lot recently, like how are journalists dealing with it, particularly after COVID and seeing this and that. I'm very hesitant when I'm asked this question to kind of go that much into it because I think that the real trauma is the trauma being experienced by the people who are talking to me and writing me who are living in prison or have just spent 20 years in there who have often had these incredibly difficult, abusive childhoods, lives that they're relating to me. And it feels so weird to me to in any way center myself in that. And I'm quite conscious trying to kind of balance me not, it's about their experience. It's about their the emotional impacts on them and their families. And I do have a pretty naturally high tolerance for taking this kind of information in, which is perhaps why I've got myself involved in this project. But, you know, there it, it can be a lot. I have also gotten almost, I don't want to say used to it, but I've been doing this for years now. And it's, it's just like, I know, you know, it's like how people who are defense attorneys or people who are therapists take in information. It's just, you do learn how to kind of titrate it, how to kind of take it in. And you kind of learn maybe when you have to step away from the material that you're reading. And I, I guess I have this, I went to, in Santa Fe, I was reporting for a couple of years on immigration issues. And I was in this really kind of rough shot, like immigration project run by a, a renegade immigration attorney named Allegra Love. And I looked on her wall and I saw a poem called A Brief for the Defense. And it's by Jack Gilbert. And it's a poem about how there's so much sorrow in the world and that it's just never ending. It's a very beautiful poem. You know, it, it talks about not denying our own happiness because it really doesn't help anybody. And that, you know, in a way, like you honor the suffering by, by delighting in what you can delight in when you can. And I try really hard to think about that, try to really hard to enjoy my children, even when I know that other people are separated from their children for just for trying to live, for trying to protect those children or for trying to survive in an impossible situation. And, and I remember that, but I also remember that it doesn't help them for me not to have a great day with my kids. And in a way, I think I enjoy my life as much as I can, keeping these people in my mind, keeping what's really happening in my mind, but knowing that it's not happening to me right now and they would, they would love to be doing this and everyone should be able to. And so I try to, I try to really hold on to all the good moments. And I think that's grounding and balancing. Mm -hmm, for sure. And so when you think about impact, about the work that you're writing about, where, what do you hope your book will do in terms of informing conversations around criminal justice reform? So I would say I'm not terribly interested in criminal justice reform. I'm more interested in the vision of abolition. I'm not a purist, but the vision of abolition, which is to say, no more mass incarceration, no prisons, no police violence, no, well, no police. You know, it, it, the idea of abolition is to have a kind of community centered, healing, holistic approach to harm and have a kind of radical reimagining of how we deal with harm. Because right now, the only way we deal with harm is to send the people we think have done it to prison for life, you know, 2.3 million people in prison. So I, I'm not super interested in reform per se, but more in the vision of abolition, which is what I keep in mind when I'm writing. That said, I think that also points to a lot of policy shifts. 
So they tend to be more on the front end, i.e. systems in place that help people before they come to the most terrible moment in their life and are forced between a bad decision and a worse decision or two equally really bad decisions. So I see it with all these women that I write about with my subjects is how they've been failed by the system again and again and again all their life. Can't do a thing, can't get it together, no money for therapy, you know, the police don't believe them. You know, they've failed by family systems, which I think are intricately connected to society at large, you know, nobody believes them and they end up ultimately in a situation being re-victimized and they act to protect themselves. But then suddenly when they've acted to protect themselves, the state, this kind of bumbling state that couldn't do a thing right, couldn't get anything together, had no money, has so much money and is so competent and can just incarcerate them just like that. So I would love to see a world where on the front end, people are given opportunities to heal before they you know, have to have this life of suffering and where their schools are funded and where they can get help and where they can get what they need and they can get housing and their parents aren't in these survival situations themselves and generational traumas can be healed. But on the back end, harm is inevitable. And when it does happen, I'm really interested in the idea of not funding so fully our prisons and not funding and throwing billions of dollars into caging millions of people, but more I'm interested in ideas of transformative justice and restorative justice and community-based justice and things that people feel like really do give them healing rather than just locking someone away. I think people think that probably feels good. Like the people on the victim side, that feels good. The person that hurt you or hurt your family member, or you perceive it that way, or we perceive this person as being dangerous is just shut away, but we don't give people other options. And I'm interested in the idea of giving them other options. Um, when that, you know, mitigating harm, lowering the possibility of harm by healing people on the other side. And then also um, it, in the inevitable case that it does happen because we're human beings and our, all societies do have that, having options for people that don't involve just throwing away other human beings forever, uh, which I think would do well for all of us. And then I would say just it, from, from a reform perspective, because I'm, it's not what I'm focused on, but I'm not anti-reform. I think trauma-informed prosecutors, prosecutors who don't have full immunity to do whatever they want and get away with it, you know, having domestic violence and sexual violence, people being educated about that before they decide to just put someone away for that. Um, so all of those things I would hope for. And, but, but I will say, lastly, that what I really want to do is tell a story. And what I'm really hoping to do is just reach readers. And I want to kind of reach readers' hearts, not have it an eat your vegetables book, but have it a book that reaches readers' hearts. They see the humanity in these people. They learn through the story and they come to their own conclusion about what we're really doing and how we can change it. It's a final question. As you embark on the fellowship this year, I'm curious to know where you hope to be a year from now with your project. Well, I mean, the ability to do the fellowship is really genuinely life-changing for, for me. Um, so I think I'll be able to do a lot more than I would have initially. But I intend to spend the next year reporting. So I, you know, because of COVID and because of all sorts of other limiting factors, I haven't been able to travel the country. I haven't been able to go meet the people that I'm writing about in Michigan, in Texas, in Missouri, in Georgia, maybe in California. And there's 
so much of that kind of on the ground reporting that I'm really excited to do. And that's what I plan to spend the fellowship doing. And I want to be able to get those documents, you know, get the, all of those documents that journalists are greedy for, like the FOIA requests and the legal documents and really have them here and be able to pick through them. So this is going to be mainly my reporting year and my leave New York city and get to go into the field and meet these people that I've met over phone and letter for so long and get their stories from them and meet their families and go to their towns and investigate. And I'm really excited for it. Great. Well, thank you, Justine. We're thrilled to be able to support you this year and look forward to seeing your project and your book come to life. Thanks so much, Alisa. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit newamerica.org slash fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2022.